The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to ask, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We'll be continuing our study in Matthew, looking at verses 30 through 37 on the eternal significance of words. On Friday, my family and I had the opportunity to drive to Williamsburg. Uh, When we go there, we like to buy a a ticket that enables us to go as often as we want to. Scott recently went there, and I didn't get the great sermon illustration that Scott got, but I'm praying for it. Maybe I'll think about it. But on the trip, however, I had the joy of hearing my little baby, Calvin, speak what I think, at least in my, my experience, his first sentence. Now, Christy's with him all the time and hears many things, but it was truck bye-bye. And I was so excited about that. I really was. It, was, it wasn't exactly truck, but it, we knew the uck sound as the 18-wheeler went by. We knew what he meant, absolutely. And bye-bye, we definitely knew what that meant. And so I was thrilled. He was putting thoughts together. And then it occurred to me what an unbelievably long journey he has ahead of him. (laughs) Unbelievably long journey to become fully lingual in the English language. The Oxford English Dictionary, the authoritative dictionary of the English language, exists in 20 volumes. Half a million words are defined in the Oxford English Dictionary. That's unbelievable. That's a long journey for Calvin or for any of us. But words are an incredible gift from God, aren't they? The ability to speak, to understand abstract truth from sounds that we hear. Words are a gift from God. Now, in our day and age, there's a modern kind of deluge of words, kind of like an avalanche of sorts, and we stand under it all the time. All kinds of information flowing to us constantly through words. There are more means to communicate words today than ever before. Have you ever been in a checkout line and think somebody was talking to you and you begin to turn and answer and they're talking to somebody who's not even there by means of a cell phone? I I found myself irrationally being offended by that, as though my company weren't good enough for that person. Never met them before in my life. But they're talking to somebody who's not there, and then I find myself doing it too. Because frequently I come back from Kroger's without everything that I was sent to get. And so it's helpful for me to be able to check in and be sure that I'm getting everything. But you know what I mean in saying that there's a deluge of information. Something happens around the other side of the world, and that same moment, really, that same instant, working at our desks through the Internet, we can find out and read all about it uh, through Internet, through email. Cable and satellite TV making the world a small place. Never before in history have so many words been flung out across such a wide space. The question then is, if words are so plentiful, how can they be valuable? How can they be precious? Are they of any value? Do our words have any significance at all? The text we're looking at today says absolutely yes. Words are of eternal consequence. The state and destiny of your soul will be revealed on Judgment Day by the full catalog of words that you have spoken in your lifetime. And in the hands of Jesus Christ, the perfect judge, he will be able to determine accurately and perfectly the state of your soul by the things you've said. 
And so he says, by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Because there's an intimate connection between what you say and the nature and state of your heart, as established in this text. We're going to look at this today. We're going to understand the eternal significance of words. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, words are a great gift from God because our God is a verbal God. He speaks words. From the very beginning, he created through words. When he said, let there be light, and there was light. And so God's word is powerful. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host, by the breath of his mouth. Language was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The gift to humanity of words is first demonstrated by Adam naming the animals as each one came by and he gave to each its name. Earlier, he had commanded Adam, the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And so this warning was given to him by means of words, verbal communication, a warning from God, a commandment. Adam's first quoted words were a love poem, I think, in the Hebrew, when he sees his wife. The first time a man speaks in the Bible, he's praising God for his wife. What an incredible thing. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. It reads like a poem in the Hebrew. It's a gift from God. But with the fall, as we fell into sin, the gift of language became perverted and in many senses is wicked now. Words are used to pierce and to hurt, to crush and to destroy. Words are used to drive husbands and wives apart. Words are used to boast and brag as slaves of pride. Words are used to make wicked plans, to lay traps and make plots and schemes to plunder or murder the innocent. Small wonder that Paul focused on human speech when he was cataloging sins in Romans chapter 3 and zeroed really in on the speech process when he says in Romans 3, 13 and 14, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And so we reveal the sinful wickedness of our heart in its natural state by how we speak, by the way we talk. And James picks up on this in James 3. He says, The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, what is the context of Christ's meditation on words? Why does he talk here about words and by what we say and judgment con connected with words? So the context has to do with his enemies making a concerted attack on him. In chapter 12, verse 14, after Jesus heals on the Sabbath, they arrange and get together to plot against him to murder him. They're going to kill him. And as I've mentioned, their plot will be successful. In the end, they will murder Jesus. They will kill him. They're using words to make this plan. Now, in our account here, Christ heals again. And the Pharisees blaspheme greatly. Look at verse 22 through 24. It says, They brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. 
And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Now, here's a man who, under a demonic influence, has been robbed of the gift of speech. He cannot communicate by words. It's been stripped from him by this demon, this indwelling demon. And Jesus heals him so that he can both talk and see. All the people are astonished and speak this question. Could this be the son of David? And so out of their heart, they're speaking and wondering, thinking about Christ, considering the evidence for his deity, considering the evidence for his claim to messiahship. I believe it's because the power of the Holy Spirit was so so evident in that miracle In some respects, you think a kind of an ordinary, run-of-the-mill miracle. Jesus did all kinds of things like this. But I think there was something unique at this moment. A sense of the power of God present. The Holy Spirit very thick in His presence there, so that it says the people were astonished, literally beside themselves, it says in the Greek. They were outside themselves with astonishment. And they asked, could this be the Son of David? But, verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, stop there, they speak, they say some words at this moment. And those words will never be forgotten, ever. What do they say at this moment? It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he drives out demons. They took their tongues, given them a gift from God, the tongues made to be a river of blessing and of praise for God, and they used those tongues to curse God's anointed Messiah and to call him a demon, really the prince of demons. These were not merely idle words, were they? They reflected the depths of the Pharisees' heart. It's what they really, truly believed about Jesus. They reflected the depth of their rebellion against God and against Christ. These were words that were spoken and once spoken could never be retracted. The words reflected the state of their heart. And as a result of that, the state of their heart of unbelief against so clear an evidence of the deity and the presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit, they would never be forgiven. Never. And so Jesus talks about the significance of words. Now, first, in our text, we see that words reveal relationship to Christ. You're either with him or you're against him. Look at verse 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. There is no gray area when it comes to the kingdom of Christ. No gray area whatsoever. Jesus leaves us none here. You're either with me or you're against me. That kind of thinking is very unpopular today. We've seen even the political world. If a political leader will make a statement, you're either with us or you're against us, you get hammered. This is that kind of black-white thinking that I thought we were out of. We're done with that now. We're postmoderns. We tend to see a little bit of truth in every viewpoint. Try to understand everybody's viewpoint. To some degree, that's a good thing. But when it comes to Christ, when it comes to his kingdom, you're either with him or you're against him. He's left no gray area whatsoever. Nowadays, we think you can be both a Christian and a Muslim at once. Something like that. And so words don't have as much meaning as they used to have. Things get all blurry and a little bit hard to understand. But Christ rejects this way of thinking forever. Remember in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus was training his apostles and he was going to send them out on their mission. He said, do not suppose that I came to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. 
And then he said this, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus allows no gray area whatsoever when it comes to the kingdom of God. And I think this is highlighted by a mirror statement he makes here in verse 30 and then one also in Luke chapter 9. Here in verse 30 we get this. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. But then in Luke 9, John came to him, having seen somebody trying to drive out demons in Christ's name. And John says, Master, we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. And Jesus says in Luke 9:50, Do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. Two sides of the same coin. There's only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the devil. If you're in the one, you're not in the other. If you're in the other, you're not in the one. It's impossible for there to be gray area in this matter. There are two kingdoms at war. Now, last time we saw that the devil has a kingdom. In verse 26, Jesus says, If Satan dries out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? So Satan has a kingdom, clearly. Christ has a kingdom too. And as we looked at last time, we saw that the advance of the kingdom of heaven is done by spiritual violence. Not physical violence, not by the sword, not that way. But in the spiritual realm, a very violent advance. It's opposed every step of the way by the devil. He's not going to give up any territory, not a single soul, no ground whatsoever will he give up uh, willingly. It has to be taken from him, and Christ will take it and has been taking for 2,000 years. A powerful advance by Jesus Christ. And therefore, there can be no neutrals in this war. Oh, no, I'm staying out of it. Christ and the devil fighting it out. I'm, I'm staying out. I just want to see who wins. And then I'll kind of... No, that's not possible. Jesus doesn't allow room for neutrality in this matter. World War II, as Nazism was covering continental Europe, Switzerland maintained neutrality right in the center. They wanted to maintain their boundaries and not get involved. Sweden maintained neutrality. Spain maintained neutrality during World War II. But in this war, neutrality is impossible. Jesus says so. You're either with me or you're against me. Now, Christ's mission, I think he gives in verse 30 very clearly, he who does not gather with me does what? Scatters. So Jesus came to gather what had been scattered. He has clear marching orders from his heavenly Father. In Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. So Jesus is here to, to gather what had been scattered. Now, recently we've seen in the news a part of the country called Tornado Alley. Have you seen some of these images on the news? A tornado is, a, is an incredibly violent thing, just wind uh, whipping up into a frenzy and then coming to a certain area. When I lived in Kentucky, it always seemed to be the trailer parks. I don't know what it is, but it was just attracting these things down Tornado Alley. And when the tornado would come and leave, what had been in good order was now thrown and disheveled everywhere. You've seen some of these images of a home just rendered uh, almost as though it had exploded. In some cases, I think that's what does happen. The pressure build, it just explodes and things are scattered over miles and miles of area. But the power and damage to scatter of a tornado is nothing compared to the power and damage to scatter of sin. Sin has been scattering for millennia. And Jesus is God's response to the scattering of sin. He came to regather and put back in good order what God had originally arranged and put it in even better order because the eternal state's even better than the Garden of Eden. Praise God for His grace. 
But this is what he does. He puts back into good order what the devil desires to throw into disarray. This is what Jesus did. And if you are with him, you're going to gather with him. But if you're not with him, you're going to be scattering. You're a force for scattering. And so Jesus is working through the world and gathering what was scattered. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus says in Matthew 23. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. And so there's a gathering there. This is language that the Jews would have known. Isaiah has over and over prophecies of the regathering of the Jews back to the promised land, which we believe are still yet to be fulfilled in many ways. And so the Jews are going to be regathered. In Isaiah 43, I will take them from the north and say from the north, give them up. And from the south, do not hold them back. And he's going to regather back into the promised land, the Jews. What's amazing, though, is that the apostle John applies that to Gentiles, too. Do you remember the, the discussion between Caiaphas and all the others? And they're trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. And Caiaphas, as they're arguing back and forth, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up and said to his friends and cronies, You know nothing at all. What a statement to make. Sweeping. You know nothing at all. Don't you know it's better for one man to die than that the whole nation perish not? And then John comments this way. This is in John 11:51. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, verse 52, and not only for that nation, but also for these scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. That's incredible. We Gentiles are the scattered people of God, and he's gathering us together. That's his work. That's his mission. And so he's in the world gathering, and he's been doing it for 2,000 years, gathering us together. And so I want you to stop for a moment right in the middle of this sermon and do a little self-diagnosis. Am I gathering with Christ or not? This is about the eternal significance of words. How do we gather with Christ? We speak the gospel. We proclaim the good news to those who haven't heard. Am I gathering? First of all, you can't gather with Christ if you haven't been gathered yourself. If you're not a Christian, you cannot be gathering. By definition, you're scattering. Just by the way you live your life. You're scattering away from, away from God, away from the center. You are the centrifugal force of sin. Fleeing the center, which is God, is Christ. But the sinner causes everyone to run the opposite direction. Scattering. And so I ask, are you gathering with Christ? Are you holding and bringing in through the preaching of the gospel. And by the way you live your life, are you attracting people to Christ? I'll speak more about that toward the end. The Pharisees were on the wrong side. Their words revealed their hatred for Christ. They hated him. And they scattered away from Christ every chance they got. They sought to run people away from Jesus so that they would not believe. And the whole time they thought they were serving God. Isn't that incredible? Scattering. Secondly, words reveal, therefore, resistance to the Spirit. Verse 31 and 32. Christ zeroes in now on the very words that the Pharisees spoke. They are immensely significant. Christ is, here in this text, about to speak, the most terrifying statement he makes, I think, anywhere in the Bible. Incredible. Most people, I think, as preaching on this would say, the title of the sermon would be, The Unforgivable Sin. And that's tempting. But I think that the issue of words is what really brings this whole passage together. The whole passage is united around the issue of words. Verse 31 and 32, And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Now, before we get to the negative part about the unforgivable sin, let's not skip too quickly over the word of grace that Christ spoke at the beginning. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven man. Now, this doesn't mean every single solitary sin, for then hell would be empty. But it means every category of sin, every type of sin will be forgiven. This is very encouraging. The nature of our God is to forgive. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Amen. But rather richly blesses sinners who call on him in faith. And so Abraham's lying is forgiven. Moses' murder is forgiven. David's lust and adultery and blood guilt forgiven. Jonah's rebellion and running the opposite direction from the will of God for his life forgiven. Manasseh, forgiven for passing his son through the fire as an offering to Molech. Incredible what God will forgive. Augustine, forgiven for his fornication. Luther, forgiven for his blasphemy when he said to his father confessor, Love God, I hate God. Forgiven for that. Forgiven. John Newton, forgiven for his slave trading and his dissolute, drunken life. All manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Hell is going to be filled with repentant adulterers and fornicators and homosexuals and liars and thieves and murderers. It's going to be filled with those kinds of people for God delights to save them. He is a forgiving God. Specifically, blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven. How many people have you ever heard take the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in vain as though it were nothing? I used to work with a guy, Christian, who got so weary of this, being around his fellow workers, they were saying Jesus Christ, and they weren't speaking words of praise. They were just using it like a swear word. He got so weary of this that he decided what he would do is every time he heard it, he would say, praise his holy name. Every time. You know, somebody hit their thumb and say, Jesus Christ, praise his holy name. Praise his holy name. After a while, that guy didn't hear that anymore. Okay? He didn't hear those things. I remember, as I've shared before, working uh, on an assembly line with a guy, and he said, he blasphemed Christ's name, and then realized, you know, oh, that's that weird Baptist ordained guy that has that Bible study. Sorry. I said, I'm not your judge. I'm not going to be sitting on that throne on Judgment Day, but there is a judge, and he hears you all the time. Just remember that when you speak that word. This is the name of our Savior. And Jesus says specifically, blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Peter calls down curses on himself the night he denies Christ. Blaspheme the name. Paul specifically lists this among his sins. He said, I was a blasphemer because I didn't understand. I did it in ignorance. But he blasphemed the name of Christ. Must have been. And all of that will be forgiven. But there is such a thing as an unforgivable sin. A sin you can commit that will never be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, people are always concerned about this. And they wonder, have I committed the unforgivable sin? John Bunyan asked that question. The devil used to insinuate, insinuate and whisper in his ear because he was a blasphemer. 
John Bunyan before he was converted. You have committed the unforgivable sin. You will never be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Well, I can't speak absolutely authoritatively, but I sense that if you're intensely worried about committing the unforgivable sin, you haven't committed it. I see something different at work in this text here, something else going on. And it has to do with the context in this text. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, does an incredible miracle. And people have a sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So thick you could cut it with a knife. You could feel the presence of the Holy Spirit there. And they're astonished and they wonder, could Jesus be the son of David? And it's in the context of the ongoing ministry he's been doing. The preaching, the proclamation of the word, all the teaching he's been doing. Extraordinary. No one had ever heard teaching like that. The authority and the power. And then the miracles. A firm and solid basis for faith, Jesus said. Believe on the evidence of the miracles, he said. And they look at all of this evidence right in their face. And what do they conclude? It is by Beelzebub, the devil, that he does these things. 180 degrees the opposite direction. I think that's the unforgivable sin. The Spirit of the Lord was on Christ, anointing him to do this ministry. And they blasphemed that work by concluding exactly the opposite. It should have told them that Christ was God and that he was Savior. Instead, they conclude that he's a devil and a deceiver. Now, why is it unforgivable? Well, I say this, that there's nothing left that God will do. They've seen it all. They've heard the gospel. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the incarnate God in the flesh. And there is nothing more that God will do for them. William Hendrickson puts it this way. For penitence, they substitute hardening. For confession, they substitute plotting. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they are dooming themselves. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, and a murderer, there is hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, O God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a man has become this hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay attention to the Spirit, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 puts it this way. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received a knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin remains, but a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Thirdly, words... Reveal true character, verses 33 through 35. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, Jesus said. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. So words reveal the true character and nature of the tree. If you're a good tree, you're going to bear good fruit. Imagine you're walking through the woods and you're not an expert on trees, as one of our members is. We had a good discussion about that. But who could notice and tell. But let's say you're just an average citizen and you see in the spring a tree and it's got some leaves and maybe, you know, some little flowers on it. Could you tell what kind of tree it is? Probably not. I couldn't. But when it starts to bear its fruit, then you know. It's an apple tree. It's a pear tree. You can tell by the fruit. Jonathan Edwards said that character lies in the affections. What you love, 
what you hate. And so I think it relates to this text. You tend to store up inside you what you love. The things you love, you store up lots of it. You take in lots of it and store it up. Things you hate, you don't. Unbelievers love this world and the things in the world. They feed their minds on worldly things. They treasure them up inside because they are a treasure to them. Entertainment fills their minds. They store up movies and videos and TVs, TV programs and sports and games and worldly entertainment. Store that up. Ambition fills their minds. They store up top ten strategies on how to build a a successful business or how to retire at age 40, a millionaire. That's what they store up. Lust fills their minds and they store up images and experiences of sensual pleasure. Self fills up their mind and they fill up their minds and their hearts with what they like, their opinions, their desires, their goals, their aspirations. That's what they feed on all the time. And then, out of that, they speak. Out of what the heart has filled itself up with, the words pour out. Verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil, that's essence, say anything good, that's fruit. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Therefore, it is impossible for an evil man to speak anything that God considers good. Impossible. Even a simple statement like, well, that was a wonderful meal, thank you very much is not spoken out of faith for the glory of God. It is impossible for an evil man to say anything that God accepts as good. Now, it is God's special work to make an evil tree good. Isn't that wonderful? That God can take an evil tree like me and make me good at my essence. I can't do that to myself. I can't change what I am. But God can. This is the glory of regeneration. The glory of conversion is that he can make a tree good. This is what he said. He gives us a command. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. But we can't obey the command. Only God can. Only God can make an evil tree good. And praise God, he's doing that today around the world. He's making evil trees good by the power of the Holy Spirit transforming them from within so that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And then, all of a sudden, we love new things and different things than we used to love. And we hate things we used to love. We've been transformed. And out of that new nature, we speak many things. Romans chapter 10, it says, the word is near you. What word? The word of the message. The word of the kingdom. The word, the seed, the word of God is near you. It is in your mouth and in your hearts. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with the mouth that you speak and are saved. I believe the two texts go beautifully together. God transforms us by His Spirit. And out of that new nature, we speak words of faith. Right at the beginning, what someone call a sinner's prayer. 
And we say, oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Oh God, I'm sorry for who I am. Oh God, thank you for Christ. God, thank you that he died in my place on the cross. Thank you that he rose again. But the tree has already been made good. And it's speaking good words. Words of sorrow over sin. And words of faith and trust. Make a tree good and it's going to say things like that. It's going to call on the name of the Lord. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the new creation speaks faith to God the Father and keeps speaking it the rest of his life. It's a beautiful thing. And as a result, we start to treasure up a new vocabulary. We love God, and so we treasure up words about God. We love Christ, and so we treasure up words about Christ. We love the kingdom of God, and we treasure up words about the kingdom. We want to talk about these things, and out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And therefore... Finally, Judgment Day reveals the eternal significance of words. On that day, Christ, with a full record of every word we've ever spoken, will most accurately and perfectly judge your soul. He knows who you are by what you've said. Verse 36 and 37, I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, if you've heard me preach any length of time, I've mentioned that sermon, that that text, 30, 40 times. It teaches me of the meticulous and careful nature of Judgment Day. Remember that our God, with Him, a day, one single day, is like a thousand years. He studies every tiny motion and inclination of the heart as though it went on for centuries. He just knows you totally. And he remembers everything. Every word written, as it were, with an iron stylus and a permanent tablet. He's not going to erase history. And so every careless word we've spoken, we will give an account. In a way, it's a terrifying thought, isn't it? Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So even careless words... Like that off-color remark I made eight years ago, that one? Yes. The uh, insult that I hurled unheard by anyone else at that driver who did that to me? God heard everything, every careless word. What I said to my spouse last night? Yes. Every careless word you will give an account. Hmm. Do you need a Savior? Yes. Anyone other than Herbert? All of us need a Savior. I need a Savior, Herbert. Because my words would condemn me if God hadn't made the tree good and transformed me so that I've also spoken words of faith and trust in Christ too. Because I love Him. He's changed me. But it's such a mixed thing, isn't it, in the book of James. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, it should not be. But there it is. And so a meticulous accounting. Because it reveals the nature of our heart. Do even Christians have to give an account for their words? Yes. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. But, praise be to God, there is a justification through faith in Christ for us sinners. And so that by speaking out of the fullness of the heart, faith in Christ, we are justified and we will not be condemned for those careless words we have spoken. Peter isn't, and neither is Paul. 
And so we will stand with them as redeemed sinners. Now, what kind of application do we take from this? First, do your words, the catalog of your words, show you that you are with Christ or do they show that you're against him? There are only two options, not a third. You can't be neutral. You're either with Christ or against him. Do the catalog of your words show that you are a Christian, that you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior? Secondly, do the catalog, the listing of your words, show that you are gathering with Christ, evangelistically gathering, speaking the word that can only, is the only power of salvation for a sinner. Do your words show that you are evangelistic? Simple test. When was the last time you opened your mouth and spoke gospel truth to somebody you knew was an unbeliever? Just think about it that way. When was the last time you spoke the words of the gospel to somebody you knew was an unbeliever with the hopes that they would be saved? Are you gathering with Christ? And in a bigger sense, how is your life? Is your life putting the gospel on display? Is it gathering and causing people to be attracted to Christ? Or is it repelling people away from Christ? Thirdly, what do your words show about your true character? If we had an opportunity to read a transcript of your words from the last week, what would they show about you? A full transcript now, not a selected or edited one. I wouldn't give it to you to edit first. We can do that, can't we? But Jesus has the full account. What would they show about your character? What you love and what you hate? What are you feeding your mind so that out of the fullness of the heart the mouth speaks? What's going in? Is the word of God flowing in or other things? Fourth, ask God to watch your mouth since he is anyway. Isn't he? So ask him. Psalm 141.3 says, Set a guard over the door of my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. God, keep me from saying things that dishonor you. Ask him to help you. Let your conversation always be filled with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you can answer anyone properly. Let it be filled with the word of God. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. Speak that way. And then finally, get ready. Get ready every day for Judgment Day. What I've said to you here is true. You will give an account for your words. And if you give an account for your words, you'll give an account for everything. Absolutely everything. Every inclination of the heart, every action of the body, everything you'll give an account. Get ready for it. Prepare yourself for it. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.